Well, good afternoon, everyone. An honor to be behind this pulpit to bring to you a word from the Lord. And this Lord's Day, we're going to be continuing our sermon series on the Gospel of John. And this, um, this day, we are going to be finishing chapter 5. Now, if you recall up to this point, there has been much that we have gone over, much that we have seen, much that we have addressed in this gospel that the Apostle John wrote. But the overarching theme with everything that we have written, as we've stated countless times, can be found um, in actually one of the last chapters, John chapter 20, verse 31. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, and that's the thing there that I want you to stress, that I want to stress to you today, by believing, you may have life in his name. And the reason why I'm stressing that word, believing today, is because one of the things that we're going to see as we read this chapter, as we read this section, chapter 5, verses 30 through 47, is an unwillingness to believe, not just unbelief, an unwillingness to believe by many of the Jews and the Pharisees. And is that unwillingness that is condemning them, that is sending them to hell and to judgment, and that's keeping them from embracing Jesus Christ. And it's something that I want to make sure that I am emphasizing today, because just like with the Pharisees, just like with many of the Jews, both back then and even today. It is the unwillingness to believe that plagues many people today. Not lack of evidence, not lack of proof, not lack of witnesses. An unwillingness to believe. And we're going to see that today. So I want to emphasize what the reason was that John wrote this book. He wrote that so that we may believe. So I trust that as we look through this, that we may learn from the example of the Pharisees and not do as they do. I don't want you to learn from it and follow them, obviously, but learn from their missteps, learn from their lack of unbelief and not do as they do so as to not fall into the same trap of unbelief, unwillingness to believe that they found themselves in. So with that being said, Let's go to the Lord our God in prayer quickly. Our most gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you today. I'm ready um, to hear a word from you, ready to look and to learn from what we find in the scriptures, what we find in these verses today. So God, I ask, please, that you may be with us, that you may guide us, O oh Lord, today, and that in reading, in studying, O oh Lord, that we may understand and that in understanding, Lord, we don't close our hearts to believing, but rather, God, that you may humble us so that we may believe, O oh Lord. So God, humble us now. Open our eyes, open our ears, but more importantly, Lord, humble us so that we may hear and receive with a willing heart all that we will hear and read today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. 
So again, we have arrived um, at the end of chapter five, and we still have 16 chapters to go, so we are not finishing this series anytime soon. But in these five chapters, we have already seen more than enough things to reach the conclusion that John told us in John 20, verse 31, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Think about it. We saw John the Baptist testify to Jesus being the Lamb of God in chapter 1. We saw Jesus turning water into wine in chapter 2. We saw Jesus chastising and turning the the, the money changers and all of that from the temple in chapter 2. We saw his zeal. We see Jesus talking to Nicodemus, telling them that unless you are born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God in chapter 3. We see in chapter 4, Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman, revealing things to her that only God could know without being told ahead of time. We see Jesus healing the nobleman's son in chapter 4, and then we saw Jesus healing the man who was sick, who was paralyzed for 38 years. All of these things, they point to Jesus Christ being the Messiah. But even though all these point to Jesus being the Messiah, as I stated earlier, many of the Jews were still unbelieving. Though many of the things were testifying to who Jesus was, their minds remained in the state of unbelief. Now, how could that be? How could these people witness all of these things that they saw and even see things that fulfilled prophecy and yet remain in unbelief? Well, we're going to see today. The problem is not, as I stated earlier, it wasn't that there wasn't enough proof that there wasn't enough evidence the problem is that they simply refused to believe they don't believe because they don't want to believe remember in john chapter 3 verse 2 nicodemus told jesus that they knew that jesus came from god because no one can do any of these signs unless god sends them so he admits it they knew that jesus came from god because who else can do the signs that jesus did So they knew, but yet they did not believe. (sighs) Refusing to believe, not just unbelief, refusing to believe is the grave sin that entangles so many people today. Sign after sign, testimony after testimony, scripture after scripture can be given to some people and nothing will convince them to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, You know, with that being said, that doesn't mean that we stop giving the gospel, but we must come to the realization that when a person doesn't believe in Jesus, it's not because there isn't enough evidence. It's because they don't want to. The heart of man is the problem. Pride, lust, greed, envy, coveting. All of these things are sins that people love to cling to. And so long as people cling to these sins, they will never want to cling to Jesus. This was the case with the Pharisees. Their pride was their downfall. And this is the case for so many people who claim to be believers today. And this is the case for all those who don't call themselves believers and refuse to accept the gospel. They love their sin. And they would rather die in their sins than live for Jesus. We saw this. John told us this in John chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. Remember, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness 
rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. They hate the light and does not come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. They don't want to believe because they loved the darkness. They loved the evil that they were doing more than the holiness that God requires. They were comfortable in their sin. See, the light of the gospel exposes their deeds. And they didn't want that. Jesus, by merely fulfilling his calling, was exposing how far off the mark the Pharisees were and many of the Jews from salvation. And rather than humble themselves and come to the light and believe in the Messiah, they chose to stay in the darkness. You know, what's especially sad is that it's not like the Pharisees and many of the Jews who refused to believe were the only ones who were off at some point as it pertains to the Old Testament. And who was he pointing to? I mean, when you read through the Gospel of John or any of the other Gospels, for example, you'll see many times where Jesus is telling his own disciples how they're misunderstanding Scripture at some point. But see, the difference between them, the disciples, and the Pharisees was pride and stubbornness and a refusal to be corrected with the Pharisees. Because they were experts to be corrected by a carpenter and a bunch of fishermen was out of the question for them. To be taught the true meaning of the scriptures by people who were not as studied as them was impossible. Even though the works that they saw taking place by Jesus should have humbled them enough to listen to him, their pride was keeping them from embracing a Nazarene carpenter born to a carpenter. Now, just to remind you what we've already seen in chapter five, after Jesus heals the nobleman's son in Cana in chapter four, now he goes to Jerusalem and he heals a man who has been sick for 38 years. You know, some texts say that he was an invalid, so paralyzed in some sort of way for 38 years. Now, you would think that when a person who has been sick for 38 years, potentially paralyzed maybe for 38 years, certainly unable to move about on his own, as we read in the text earlier, um, for 38 years, that when that person is all of a sudden healed and walking, you would think that people would be praising God. But there were some people who were annoyed at the healing. The Pharisees, seeing the man carrying his pallet, rather than inquire about, wait a minute, weren't you just sick? Weren't you just not walking? How is it that you're walking? Rather than do that, they told him, hey, 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 wait a minute, sir, who told you to carry your pallet? They cared more about a potential quote-unquote violation of the Sabbath, because it really wasn't a violation of the Sabbath, but then in their eyes, it was a violation of the Sabbath. They cared more about that potential violation than they did about a man who was healed after 38 years of being sick. Now, is it because they held the Sabbath in so much honor that they wanted to ensure that it was faithfully kept? No, not at all. Because see, if you go to John chapter 7, you see Jesus telling them that they would circumcise a man on the Sabbath if need be. But yet they are mad that Jesus made a whole man's body well on the Sabbath. They're hypocrites. So it's not that they had a high view of the Sabbath. They had a high view of themselves. How dare this person go against what we say and do? 
What does Jesus think he is? Who, do he, who does he think he is, God? You know, th there is clearly a hatred for Jesus that the Pharisees had that is rooted in pride, clearly. Because of this prideful hatred, no amount of testimony was going to change their mind. The problem was within them. They had an evil and unbelieving heart. And Jesus, as we're going to read now, is going to start pointing it out to them. So, with that being said, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 5. We're going to be reading um, verses 30 through 47 in its entirety. So again, that's John chapter 5, starting in verse 30. And we're going to read all the way to the end of this chapter. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. This is Jesus speaking. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men. But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me because he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, you will not believe my words powerful stuff that Jesus is saying here and things that we have to consider. So let's start first by looking at verse 30. See, in verse 30, Jesus says something. He says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. See, in this verse, Jesus it's saying something. Jesus came to accomplish a task. He did not come to fulfill his own mission, but rather the mission given to him by the Father. This is what he tells us here. Matter of fact, our confession of faith summarizes this quite well in chapter 8. And I'll read to you sections 1 and sections 3 of, of that. Listen to this. It writes this. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. 
The Lord Jesus in his human nature, thus united to the divine, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all treasures of wisdom and knowledge in whom it pleased the father that all fullness should dwell to the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled and full of grace and truth. He might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator and surety, which office he took not unto himself, but was thereunto called by his father who put all power and judgment into his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. End quote. So Jesus was given an assignment. If you remember many, many months ago when we talked about God's covenant with man. And I actually, it was me that talked about the covenant. And we talked about the covenant of redemption, the plan of redemption that the Trinity laid out before the foundations of the world. And if you recall, in that grand covenant of redemption, that plan of redemption, we had the father who elects, the son who redeems, and the Holy Spirit who applies that redemption. So we have Jesus Christ now in time and space coming to fulfill what was laid out before the foundations of the world, which is to redeem uh, people. And one thing that I, 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 I want to point out here because it is such an important point, and it's something that is so contrary to what we see with the Pharisees. In Jesus, we see an example of what it means to be humble and submissive. See, Jesus was given a mission to complete by the Father, and this is what Jesus spends his entire earthly ministry doing. But see, being equally God, Jesus could have easily just done what he wanted apart from what the God the Father willed. But see, knowing that there is an end goal being accomplished, Jesus humbled himself and submitted to the will of the Father. When he came into the earth, the works that he performs were in accordance to the task given to him. He does not deviate from the Father's will, even when it becomes difficult. Matter of fact, as he is preparing to be betrayed and to be arrested and to suffer on the cross, we read Jesus saying this, asking this of the Father in Matthew 26, verse 39. He says, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So he's asking God, Lord, if it's possible, I don't want to do this. I know what's about to go down. I know what's about to happen. I know this is going to be painful. God, if it's possible, uh, let this cut pass. But then he humbles himself and he says, nevertheless, not as I will, not as I want, but as you will. That is humble, to say the least. So we see that in Jesus. And Jesus is telling the Jews who are upset with him that, listen, all I'm doing is submitting to the Father. Father, All I'm doing is doing what he is telling me to do. I'm just being obedient to the mission that God gave me to do. And then after Jesus tells him this, then he goes on to what will be basically the prevailing theme of the rest of this chapter. He says this in verses 31 and 32. He says, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. So Jesus is telling them, essentially, hey, you know, if I came out here and told you that I'm the Messiah, and I didn't have any corroboration, no evidence, you would have a right to not believe me. But I didn't come without corroboration. I have witnesses. I have brought receipts. 
And then at that point, what we now will start to see Jesus doing is bringing those receipts, so to speak, showing them that there has been testimony, there has been witnesses that have testified to who he was. And in doing so, what Jesus is doing, quite frankly, because again, he's talking with Pharisees, is he is bringing a principle that is found actually in the law to them. We find it in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on any on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So, see, when you go back to the law, we see Moses state that not on one witness, not on, on the account of what one person says, but on the evidence of multiple witnesses, Will a matter be confirmed? If a person, just to kind of draw this principle, if a person made an accusation about another person, that person that is being accused would not be found guilty on the account of one testimony. There had to be multiple lines of witnesses or testimonies in order for a matter to be confirmed. Well, this is the same principle that is brought into the New Testament, for example, when it comes into matters of church discipline, as we saw in Matthew 18. If a person has an ought with another person, they go to them. If they don't repent, they bring two or three people with them so that every matter may be made clear on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And we also see this principle being brought out by Paul as it pertains to bringing a charge on an elder, on a pastor, 1 Timothy 5, verse 19 where you need multiple witnesses, not just one person saying something. That's how rumors get started. There must be multiple lines of evidence or testimonies to establish any matter. Because of the fact that only God, only God can't lie, no person's word is good enough to stand on its own. People can deceive. People can be deceived. People can misspeak. They can misconstrue actions or intentions. They can be wrong. So to take a person's word in a serious matter without supporting proofs can lead to people condemning an innocent person, which God calls an abomination. Proverbs 17, verse 15. Solomon writes, he says, to acquit a guilty person and to condemn a righteous person, both are like an abomination to the Lord. So, Jesus He's claiming to be the Messiah, and he says that his claim to being a Messiah does not rest alone on him saying it. Now, being that Jesus is God, really and truly, Jesus doesn't need other witnesses to attest to what he's saying. But Jesus knows who he is dealing with, and he knows that he is speaking to a people, quite frankly, that don't immediately realize that he is God. So for him to merely claim that he was the Messiah without providing any claim or proof would have made it difficult for anyone in that time to believe. So Jesus condescends actually to the people in order to help them, in order to confirm to them that he was the promised Messiah. And as a result, he brought witnesses that supported his claim. Now, when you go on throughout the rest from 33 to 47 we see or 33 to 40 we see that there are four witnesses that jesus brings to the witness table to the trial so to speak to attest to him being the messiah 
He brings John the Baptist. He brings his ministry and miracles. He brings God the Father himself, and he brings the scriptures. All of these witnesses, Jesus says, attest to him being the Messiah. So, being that Jesus brought all of these, let's take a look, witness by witness, at the claims that they made. Let's start with John the Baptist, as this was the first one that he brings up in this passage, verses 33 to 35. Jesus himself says, you have sent to John, talking about John the Baptist, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. If you recall, in the very beginning of this chapter, or not in the chapter of this gospel, in John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, the apostle John writes in regards to John the Baptist. He says, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. So we see it from the very beginning of this apostle, of this gospel that John the Baptist came to testify, to be a witness to the people that this is the Lamb of God. We see, matter of fact, if you, going back to chapter 1, if you um, look at verses 19 through 34, which I, I will read in its entirety, we see this testimony of John, and just by way of review, because it has been a while since we've looked at this, I'll just read it to you again. This is John 1, starting in verse 19. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. So the Pharisees were the one who sent these people to ask about who John the Baptist was. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we see John proclaiming, hey, this is the Messiah. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So, John the Baptist in as clear of a fashion as can be possibly given, says that this is the Messiah. Keep in mind, the Pharisees clearly knew 
that John the Baptist was someone special because of what he was doing. That's why they sent people to him to ask, wait, are you the Christ by any chance? Because, man, I tell you what, you're doing a lot of things that seem to be lining up with Scripture. And John the Baptist tells him, no, I'm not the Christ. And then he says, this is the Christ. So he tells them. And what's interesting is Jesus tells the Jews that John was the lamp that was burning and shining. Not the light, but the lamp. A lamp in and of itself is not the light. It merely holds the light and presents the light. And John the Baptist, as a lamp, was presenting to the Jews the light of the world, Jesus Christ, which he did. Now, as Jesus alluded to, going back to John chapter 5, for a while they were thrilled to have John the Baptist. When they realize, oh my gosh, you know, for 400 years we have had no prophet, we have seen no prophecy, and now all of a sudden we're seeing these great works being done. They were thrilled, but eventually they began to become bothered by his ministry. Jesus again said that they were willing to rejoice for a while in John's light. But when it became clear who John was pointing them to, the true light, they were no longer willing to esteem John the Baptist. So there goes one witness that Jesus brings to them that the Jews, the Pharisees rejected. The next witness that, God, that Jesus brings to them, to the witness stand, were his works, his miracles, his signs. We read in verse 36, but the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. So then he starts with John the Baptist, but then he says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John's. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, that they've seen him do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. Now, some people, because we always have detractors or whatnot, so it's worth me at the very least just explaining, um, just in case if someone tries to make this argument. You have some people that might look at this, talking about signs as a witness, miracles as a witness. And they may make the argument that, wait a minute, a witness has to be a person. And a miracle is not a person, so therefore it does not qualify as a witness. Now, obviously, that is not the case at all. But to show that this is not just me saying it, you know, the lines of evidence that we read about in Deuteronomy 19.15 on the um, testimony of two or three witnesses, how all things stand, does not have to specifically be people as well. And I will give you an example from the scriptures of what I mean. Deuteronomy verse twenty or chapter 22, verses 13 through 19. Let me read and I'll explain, but then you should be able to hear, you know, the different lines of evidence. So let me read. Again, this is Deuteronomy 22, verses 13 through 19. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then turns against her and charges her with shameful deeds and public, publicly defames her and says, I took this woman, but when I came near her, I did not find her a virgin. Then the girl's father and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of the girl's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. The girl's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man for a wife, but he turned against her. And behold, he has charged her with shameful deeds, saying, I did not find your daughter a virgin. But this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the garment 
before the elders of the city. So the elders of that city shall take the man and chastise him. They shall find him a hundred seconds of silver and give it to the girl's father because he publicly defamed a virgin of Israel. And she shall remain his wife. He cannot divorce her all his days. So in this passage, you had a husband who claimed that his wife was not a virgin when he married her. Now, the father and the mother of the woman comes in and they as a personal witness to their daughter and they come in as a personal witness to their daughter's virginity. But they also bring a garment as proof, evidence of the woman's prior virginity. So the garment, along with the parents, served as a witness to the purity of the woman. And it's that same principle that we carry out even today. Perfect example of this would be DNA evidence, for example. If you have, you know, you know, an assault um, take place, this is why, you know, it's it is imperative whenever things like this take place that, you know, what, you know, if a person was sexually molested or whatnot, a rape kid and things like that take place. Why? Because in cases like that, it's usually two people that are there, the victim and the victimizer. But then the additional lines of evidence to protect and to bring justice to the woman would be the DNA evidence that they find. These are the multiple lines of evidence. So it's that principle that, um, that we use even today, multiple lines of evidence. And it's the same thing now going back to this here that we see here. This next witness, although not a person, were miracles, were signs that Jesus brings to the table. Now, throughout the entire Old Testament, if you know your Old Testament, um, when you have someone who was a prophet of God, God would oftentimes empower that person to do great signs to attest to the fact that they were sent by God. For example, Moses, you know, when he goes to the people, you know, you know he says, he asks God, well, how will they know that I am truly sent of you? And then God enables him to perform different signs to attest to the fact that he that God did send Moses. We see Elijah, for example, when he's with the prophets of Baal and by a simple prayer, you remember, he calls the altar and um, or calls um, the altar to burn and calls down fire from heaven, which proved the fact that God was with him, that God called him. So we see throughout the scriptures many times when a person is truly a prophet up many times, oftentimes God, in order to confirm that this is a man of God, someone that I have sent, allows for them to do signs. With Jesus Christ, the spirit, we just read it actually um, in John chapter one, the spirit rested and remained on him. As John the Baptist indicated in chapter three, Jesus was given the spirit without measure. Therefore, the works that he is able to perform far surpasses whatever works the Old Testament prophets were able to do. Those signs are declaring the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, I already mentioned all the signs that we saw Jesus perform in the first few chapters of John. Remember, he turns water into wine. He heals a nobleman's son. He heals a, a paralytic who's sick for 38 years. He turns over the tables in the temple. He tells the Samaritan woman all her sins. All of these signs attest to who Jesus is revealing himself to be. And even if the Jews were unwilling to believe that Jesus was the Messiah on account of the signs, they had to at least admit that he was sent by God. And as we saw... John chapter 3, verse 2, you can read it for yourself. Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs unless God is with them. So they knew. 
They knew that God sent him. They admitted to it. But yet while they admitted that Jesus was sent by God, they still chose to not believe in him. So there goes another witness, another testimony to who Jesus was that they rejected. And then after saying this, then we see Jesus bring up the father. He says in verses 37 to 38, and the father who sent me has testified of me. Then he says this interesting tidbit. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe him whom he sent. So along with John the Baptist and the miracles and works and ministry of Jesus, you had God himself as a witness to who Jesus was. Now, although this particular gospel does not record um, the event of, of the actual baptism, of, of Jesus, the other three Gospels, known as the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record the event of Jesus' baptism and what took place. So let's just look at one example of it. Let's look at Matthew, because Matthew actually um, kind of um, explains it in the greatest detail. Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 17. And I'm going to start in verse 7, um, just to provide context with everything. So again, this is Matthew 3, starting in verse 7. But when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So I started in verse seven because who was there? The Pharisees and the Sadducees who were also coming to be baptized. So they were there witnessing what was taking place. Jesus was not baptized by John alone in some secluded area, in some quiet region. Rather, there were people present during the baptism of Jesus. Now, whoever was there would have seen what took place after Jesus was baptized. They would have heard the voice saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am, I am well pleased. They should have thought to themselves after seeing this, like, you know, plenty of people have been baptized. By John, but th this is the first time we've seen anyone, anything like this happen. This might kind of sort of be a big deal. But yet even that testimony was not enough to make them come to terms with who Jesus was. 
Literally God saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's fascinating to me. Because nowadays you have atheists and agnostics say, you know, if God would just speak a voice, then I will believe. God spoke a voice here in John chapter 3 and they still did not believe. Because the problem is the unwillingness to believe. I cannot stress this enough. Is the heart of man. The Apostle John in his epistle that he writes in 1 John 5 verses 9 through 19 says this. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. The one who believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So they had John the Baptist as a witness. They rejected his testimony. They had the miracles and the ministry of Jesus as a witness. They rejected that. They had God the Father himself as a witness. They rejected his testimony. Again, the problem is not that there wasn't evidence. The problem is that they don't want to believe. Now, the final witness that Jesus brings to the table, we read in verse 39, are the scriptures. And Jesus tells them this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. The Pharisees, being teachers of the Bible, were well read in the law and the prophets. So if anything should have clued them to the identity of Jesus, it should have been the very word that they were reading, the scriptures themselves. Jesus tells them, essentially, the scriptures that you study, they speak of me. The prophecies that you read about are talking about me. Everything that you see in the Bible that you read, that you claim to study, that you claim to know, more than the common people point to me. And see, this is probably the most condemning thing for the Pharisees because they were supposed to be the experts in the Old Testament, in the scriptures. They studied the scriptures, but we see clearly that they never believed the scriptures because had they truly believed the scriptures, they would have believed in the Son. Had they truly believed the scriptures, they would have seen that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Now, it's, if you read verse 39, you know, Jesus says that you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But then Jesus pivots and says it is these that testify about me. So the Pharisees saw the scripture, not Christ, the scriptures as their source of eternal life. The scriptures aren't the source of eternal life. Jesus Christ is. The scriptures serve as a witness pointing us to Jesus Christ where we may, where we may obtain eternal life. So to put it another way, because I want to make sure that I'm clear here so I don't get misunderstood. The scriptures are not the end. 
Christ is. This is why we call the word the one of the means of grace. The word, the Bible, is not our source of grace. They are the means by which we come to find out about the source of our grace. The Pharisees were treating the means of grace as the source of it. And that's more than likely probably why they were so meticulous about the law and placed such strict adherence to the law, because they thought that, well, if we just do all of this, we will obtain salvation. This is why they have such a long list of laws that they attempted to keep, because they thought that in keeping perfectly the law, which they can if they really knew their own sinful self, they thought that, well, this is what I got to do, and then I'll obtain eternal life. I'll be justified by my own deeds. But see, if they treated the Bible, not as the source, but as the means of grace, rather than attempting to attain eternal life through perfect adherence to what was in the scriptures, they would have seen who the scriptures were speaking about and pointing them to, which is Jesus Christ. Now, at this point, I want to read to you from the book of Galatians, because this is very similar to what we saw taking place with the Judaizers, who, if you remember, now this obviously was many, many years ago that I went over this, um, um, the book of Galatians, but you remember you had the Judaizers who were coming, and on top of placing faith in Jesus Christ, they were requiring the people in um, Galatia to also adopt circumcision and then adopt all the Old Testament ceremonial laws and practices or whatnot for justification. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 3, verses 16 through 26. He says this, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. What, I, what I'm saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Well, then why the law then? Paul answers, he says, it was added because of transgressions having been ordained through the angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made, had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. And here's the key verse here in verse 24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. You see that? It was our tutor to bring us to Christ. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Righteousness was never possible through the law. The law was our tutor to lead us to Christ. The scriptures were pointing us towards the Messiah. The word of God was pointing us, in other words, to the living word. Now with that, in understanding that, something that you ought to keep in your mind, especially when you're reading the scriptures, in particular the Old Testament, is that we ought to be reading the scriptures with the purpose of finding Christ. 
This, again, especially applies to the Old Testament since in those times, that was the only scripture they had during the time of Christ. I love what Paul Washer um, um, noted or wrote um, recently in regards to this. He says this. He says, even the most minor theme of scripture is worth a thousand lifetimes of study. However, one theme rises above them all, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You miss the whole point of studying the scriptures if you don't have Christ as the object. Thus, there always ought to be a purposeful aim in reading the scriptures. This is where the Pharisees missed the mark. Their eyes weren't focused on Christ, even though so much of what we read in the Old Testament is pointing us towards Christ. And it's obvious if you're paying attention. And then, you know, after Jesus says this, that the scriptures testify about him, he tells them this in verse 40. You are unwilling to come to me. You are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Keep in mind, as I stated earlier, Nicodemus already, you know, indicated the fact that they and many of the Pharisees accepted the fact that Jesus was sent by God. They could not deny the things that they heard and saw. Matter of fact, matter of fact, this is one of the reasons, actually, if you remember um, in um, Matthew, I know it, it talks about this, when Jesus is healing a person who is, um, is demon-possessed, and then um, the Pharisee says, well, he cast out the demons by, um, you know, by, um, you know, by a demon, basically, I'm paraphrasing here. And then Jesus at that point tells them that they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. How in the world is he saying that? Why is he saying that? Well, he's saying that because they knew that it wasn't a demon that was doing the works. They knew that it was the Holy Spirit that was doing that. But they hated Christ so much that rather than submit to the fact that this was the Messiah, they would much rather blaspheme God and say, no, a demon is doing what they knew the spirit was doing. They could not deny the things that they heard and saw. They refused to believe. Again, they did not believe because they did not want to believe. It's as simple as that. Those who love the darkness don't want to come to the light. Those who love their sin don't want to stop sinning. Those who love the pleasures of this world don't want to give them up and seek after heavenly treasures. This is why Jesus says you must be born again. This is why Jesus says you must be given a new heart. Because see, deep down, as much as we want to look down upon the Pharisees, that was all of us until Christ changed our heart, replaced, removed that heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh. I mean, Jesus himself, Matthew 23, verse 37, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. I wanted to. I came to you first. You were unwilling. You didn't want to receive me. Now, as we continue reading this gospel, this is going to become more and more evident but Jesus is making it clear to them now that the reason why they don't want to accept them is because they don't want to. 
Their stubborn pride won't let them come to Jesus and believe in him. And again, lest we think that this issue of pride is restricted only to the Jews. No, the same issue applies to us today. The reason why people today don't believe the testimony of the Bible is because they don't want to. I don't care. They can give you all the, the eloquent words and convoluted, you know, philosophical, philosophical arguments and all of that. It comes down to the simple fact that they don't want to believe. It's as simple as that. They don't want to. They don't want to. And you know what's interesting? And matter of fact, let's let's take a look at this next passage. Because what's interesting is to double down on this point that the problem is that they just don't want to. Jesus says to them and points out to the fact that they will gladly accept the person who comes in their own name. So let's really quick, let's read verses 41 to 44, because I want to hone in on that. He says, I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? You know, so God can come with all these different witnesses and testimonies and all of that and they remain stubborn. A man comes with no witness, and they'll accept that. How prideful and stubborn do you have to be? This reveals the stubbornness in their own hearts. You know, it's very easy to believe a person that you already agree with or you want to agree with, you know, especially if what they say feeds your flesh, makes you feel good, makes you forget about your sin. If you blindly trust someone, you, you'll accept whatever they say without question. You will not require any evidence for the claims that they make. You'll believe it because they said it. When you are unwilling to trust someone, it does not matter. They can lay out every single piece of evidence to prove what they are saying. You will never believe because deep down, you don't want to believe. You don't want to believe. And this is what's going on here. Jesus just spent time saying, John the Baptist spoke of me. You saw my works. You knew that I was sent by God. You saw literally God come and speak and say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then you have the scriptures. Look at all these testimonies. And you still don't believe? But then some random guy comes in and says, hey, look at me. You believe him? No evidence, no proof, no testimony. You believe him? But I come with receipts and you won't believe me? The problem is not that there wasn't proof. The problem, again, is they did not want to believe. And when you're that stubborn, that hard-headed, again, a person can literally come and lay out, you know, irrefutable proof, close every hole or whatnot, and if you don't want to believe, you will not believe. You will close your eyes to the truth. It reminds me, we're going to see this later on, I believe is in John chapter either 7 or John chapter 9, perhaps, where, yeah, in John chapter 9, where Jesus, in the beginning of the chapter, he heals a man that was born blind. And then it's so interesting because at the very end, um, 
of the chapter, you know, Jesus says, you know, um, talking to the Pharisees, he says, for judgment, I came into the world so that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. And then those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. You know, if you just accepted the fact that, you know, you were sinful and you embraced me and came to me, you'd be justified. You'd be declared righteous because you would have accepted me. But because you think you're good, you're still in your sin. They want to be blind. They want to close their eyes. They want, they are blind. So these are people that are blind and they think they see. So because they think they see, they're going to remain blind. And what's worse is they don't want to see. They like being blind because being blind feels good to them. That's what's going on. The unwillingness that the Jews had to believe in the claims of Jesus points to the fact, as Jesus tells them in verse 42, that they don't have the love of God in them. If they truly loved God, they would have received Jesus Christ. But because they don't, in fact, love God, that's why they refuse to believe Jesus. Well, this makes sense. If you don't love God, you're not going to love the messenger that he sends. Now, at that point, the Pharisees would, you know, they would deny that, you know, that um, quip. They would say, no, 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 we do love God. What are you talking about? That's, that's why we're keeping the law as meticulously as we do. What are you talking about? But see, Jesus, knowing their hearts and being able to look past the outward facade, knows otherwise. Jesus knows that the love that they had is not for God, but for man. The glory that they desire is not the glory that comes from God, but the glory that comes from man. This is exactly what Jesus is telling them in verse 44. In order to believe in Jesus Christ requires a person to lay aside their pride and any outward glory that they may have and cling to Jesus. It means humbling yourself, recognizing that you are a wretched sinner and clinging to the only one who could wash away all your filthy stains. And see, this type of humiliation does not sit well with a person who is more concerned with receiving praise from man. So for the Pharisees who love, as Jesus says in, in, Matthew, in the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, who love to receive honor and glory from men, who love to be seated at the places of honor, they would never trade that in order to follow Jesus. Therefore, their eyes would never be able to truly see the Savior who has come into the world, as prophesied in the scriptures, that They've read, apparently, attested to by John the Baptist and God the Father and validated in the miracles that he performs. Sadly, and this is sad, when they die and when they stand before God, they will have no one else to blame but themselves. No one, no one, when they stand before God, can ever use as an excuse there wasn't enough evidence if there was enough evidence, I would have believed. No one, no one can. They all had witnesses. They just did not want to believe. And then Jesus goes on to close out this section. In verses 45 through 47, he, he says this. He says, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. 
For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how, you, how will you believe my words? Jesus was in essence telling them, I don't need to accuse you. Moses, that prophet that you hold in such high esteem, he's going to accuse you. The scriptures that you study day and night, that will accuse you. See, the Pharisees, they may have had a respect for Moses, but they did not believe what Moses wrote. If they truly believed Moses, they would have seen that Jesus, who, um, that they would have seen that Jesus was who Moses was pointing them to. Let's, let's take a look at that last verse, verse 47. Because you know what Jesus tells the Jews here is so powerful. He says, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The fact that they did not, they did not believe what Moses wrote meant that they would never believe what Jesus says. And, you know, at this point, you know, there is a there's a growing sect of people who want to cast off the writings of Moses as unnecessary for Christians to read and understand. Yet Jesus here says that if you don't believe what Moses wrote, you're not going to believe what Jesus spoke. If you truly understood Moses, then you would know that he was merely pointing people to Christ. The ceremonial laws that Moses gave were pointing people to Christ. The sacrifices instituted by Moses was pointing to Christ. The moral law written by God and presented by Moses on the tablets of stone was exposing the inner corruption of our flesh so that we can humble ourselves and turn to Christ. Going back to Galatians 3, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. Moses was pointing to Jesus Christ. His writings were pointing to Jesus Christ. They weren't the end. They were the means to the end, which is Jesus Christ. Just like John the Baptist was a lamp presenting the light of Jesus Christ, Moses also was a lamp presenting the light of Jesus. Moses, like John the Baptist, was not the light, but was pointing to the light, albeit in type and shadows. But just like they were doing with John the Baptist, the Jews did with Moses. Because they hated the light, they rejected the lamp as well. So, I mean, you know, as we wrap all of this up, I mean, what more proof did they need? Did the Pharisees need? Did the Jews need? They had the scriptures. They had John the Baptist. They had God the Father. They had the signs of Jesus Christ. The fact that none of those things brought them to belief in Jesus Christ is a testament to their unwillingness to believe. All of these witnesses were pointing to the light that was right in front of their faces. They simply did not want to believe. As I read in John 3 verse 19, they loved the darkness rather than the light. As we saw in this chapter, the glory that they desired did not come from God, but from man. Therefore, since they are willingly choosing to reject the light, they will never believe in Jesus, no matter the evidence given to them. Now, as I bring all of this to a close, this reminds me of that parable that our late pastor, Dr. T, preached on the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And if you remember that parable, matter of fact, to bring it to your mind, I'll just read it and listen to what Jesus himself says. 
This, is, this can be found in Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were combing and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away in Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And listen to this. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, for if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So if they will not listen to the scriptures, even if a person comes back from the dead, they will not believe. Brothers and sisters, in the words of the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 3, verse 20, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil and unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Don't let your pride keep you in unbelief. You know, the reason why we have the scriptures, one of the reasons, there's many reasons, but one of the reasons outside of finding Christ in the scriptures is also to learn from the examples that we see and oftentimes, sometimes, to not do as we see being done. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be like many. Obviously, there were many Jews who did believe, and there were many Jews who remained in unbelief. Don't be like them. Don't let your stubbornness close your heart from the truth that is clearly in front of you. Don't let your sins continue to hold you back from turning to Jesus Christ. As the prophet Isaiah tells us in verse 6 of the 55th chapter, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Because like the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, there will come a point in time where you will be in agony and it will be too late. You can cry out for reprieve and it will be too late. At that time, when your life comes to an end, there will no longer be an opportunity to beg for forgiveness. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Remember what the Apostle Paul tells us again in this chapter, um, in this book, um, John 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that, that by believing you may have life in his name. 
So, while there is still breath in you, humble yourselves. Turn from your pride. Turn from your stubbornness. Don't let that be your stumbling block. Repent and believe in the testimony written that points to Jesus Christ. And then believe in Jesus Christ so that you may be saved from the judgment of God. You don't need any more proof than what's already been given. You don't need any more signs, any more miracles, any more dreams. You have the scriptures. You have the testimony of God himself in the word of God. Read it. Believe in that. Because if you will not believe this, even if a person comes from the dead, you will not believe. So humble yourself. Believe the testimony and then believe in Jesus Christ so that you may have life eternally. Shall we look now to the Lord our God in prayer?